You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Oh, night, thou was my guide. O night, more loving than the rising sun. O nights that joins the, beloved, the lover and the beloved one, transforming each of them into the other. These words were, were penned by a man named John a long, long time ago. We in uh, Christian history refer to him as John of the Cross. And he was talking about a concept, really a, a state of being, that he felt every believer, every Christian, every person of faith would go through at some point. Uh, he called it the dark night of the soul. It's this period of, of doubt, of difficulty, of desolation in the hearts and minds of believers. And it's actually worked its way into our common language here in the 20th and 21st centuries. F. Scott Fitzgerald, the famous author of The Great Gatsby, which you may have been forced to read in high school at some point, uh, he said that in a real dark night of the soul, it is always three o'clock in the morning, day after day. And the scriptures discuss this same idea as well. The Psalms cry out with dark night after dark night. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you cast down, O my soul? This feeling of difficulty, of doubt, of desolation, it's existed for humans across the full scope of history. And I think for many of us today, during COVID-19, we're going through a collective and individual dark night of the soul. That's actually one reason that we've created this series that we're in right now called Reconstructing. Uh, we live in a world that's full of people who would affectionately call themselves deconstructors. Uh, some of us at this church would affectionately call ourselves deconstructors. We're the type of people that poke and prod, that ask really difficult questions about Christianity and about God. And well, in that process, we often find that we don't really have a place to go to rebuild. We find it difficult to know how to, to kind of move forward from our deconstructing from our dark night. Uh, it's like being at sea without any sight of the shore. And we believe at the spring, and Christians throughout history have believed that this dark night, this deconstructing period, can actually lead us into the life and purpose that we're called to. It's part of our mission statement here at Midtown to help people discover God's purpose for their lives. And we would say that sometimes, even when all the lights go out, we can start to see God and ourselves a little more clearly. And so that's why we're trying to reconstruct together in this series a few of those challenging and difficult questions and topics in the life of faith. And today, we're taking on a big one. It's the topic of hell. I have a friend who believes that a loving God wouldn't send people to hell. And to be clear, I understand that object objection. I've asked it myself from time to time. And Christians throughout history have asked this. It's sort of a rotisserie chicken uh, type of question where we turn it over and over and examine it from every angle. Many people have asked that question over the course of Christian history. And what I have found in, in my journey at diving more and more into scripture and diving more and more into church history is that, well, 
I've actually often misunderstood hell to begin with. What the Bible says about it, what Christians actually say about it. And that misunderstanding has actually led me to the objection itself. And so my proposition to you this morning, if you're willing, is to walk through hell with me a little bit. Because I think we might just find something on the other side that can lead us to a transformed life that can ultimately give us the life that we're called to have. So if you have a Bible nearby or an app nearby, turn with me in it to Luke, the Gospel of Luke. It's in the New Testament, the latter portion of your Bibles. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. So Luke 16, 19 through 31. Feel free to follow along with me. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, evil things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a lot to, to unpack in this passage, and I want to make sure we get to it. But before we jump in to the story, I think it's important to take a little step back and do some evaluation of, of where this story is located, what has happened around this story. Because we can do dangerous things to the Bible and to any text if we just pull a story out and start to explain that story independent of the things that surround it, right? In the same way that you wouldn't go into an art museum and just focus on one little portion of a masterpiece. Well, we don't want to do that with scripture. We want to take a step back and see the whole painting. And so I want to point out two contextual things that are important before we even jump in to the story. The first is actually what Jesus has been talking about in this chapter leading up to this story. He's been talking to both his disciples and the Pharisees, who were the fancy and self-righteous religious people of the day, uh, he's talking to them about money management. And he's actually calling out those who are wealthy and don't use their wealth for the things that God has called them to. They're manipulating the wealth for their own benefit. They're not using it to help support the people that God's heart is for. And the Pharisees oppose this message. 
it says earlier in this chapter that they actually uh, turn their noses up at Jesus. They're not wanting to hear it. And that's probably because he was convicting them. That's probably because, well, they were the ones that he was calling out. And this is an important note. Jesus, in this chapter, is talking about life here and now, how we're supposed to live as humans in the present moment. And he's specifically using money to do that, but it's located in a conversation about life here and now. And so we learn from this chapter, leading up to the story about Lazarus and the rich man, that money itself is not an intrinsically bad thing, but motivation for more money or the attainment of more money can actually blind us to the type of life that Jesus is called to. See, we're called to use our wealth to care for the poor, the needy, the oppressed, but sometimes that wealth that we possess actually blinds us to those very people. Sometimes we build walls of money so high that our neighbors disappear on the other side. Sometimes we choose to reside in our own cash castles. And I bring this up because it's important to note that the story about Lazarus and the rich man is not Jesus kind of giving some one-off story with a theological explanation of hell. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's, this is part of a series of conversations about how we ought to live now. And that's an important contextual frame that we're moving into this story with. So that's the first thing, that Jesus is talking about life here and now and how we are to live. The second thing that's important about this story is that it's, well, it's just that. It's a story. It's a parable, something that Jesus told all throughout his ministry. And this parable actually is similar to a lot of folk tales that circulated during Jesus's day. There's evidence of, of stories that rabbis told during Jesus's time uh, that were similar to this story about a, a wealthy or a healthy man and a, a poor or sick man reversing places in the afterlife. And well, Jesus actually subverts some of the common expectations, and we'll get to that a little bit later, but this is a story that he's telling. It exists not as a literal description of events, but as a picture designed to point us to a greater message beyond the story itself. C.S. Lewis, a great storyteller and examiner of stories, had a great quote that I think summed up this idea really well. Uh, he said this, to be stories at all, they must be a series of events, but it must be understood that this series, the plot, as we call it, is only really a net whereby to catch something else. And so our question here, when we know that Jesus is telling a parable, when we know he's telling a story, our question should be, well, what is the story trying to catch? So I want those two contextual clues to kind of guide us here. First, that Jesus has been talking about life here and now and how we are to live. And second, that he's trying to catch something for us in this story. So let's jump in from there. We learn right off the bat that, well, there's an important thing going on that Jesus is calling out, and it's injustice. The rich man, it says, feasted sumptuously on a daily basis. He wore purple, which was a highly expensive dye in the ancient world. He had huge meals all the time. And counter to this, it says that Lazarus was sitting at his gate. And that may have kind of actually scooted by you. You may not have noticed that prepositional phrase specifically. But if Lazarus is at the rich man's gate, that implies that the rich man can't leave his property without seeing Lazarus. He can't claim ignorance or indifference in this story. He willingly ignored the one who God called him to help. And both of these men in the story die. 
And again, we have this injustice affirmed. The rich man gets this burial, right? A respect for the deceased, but well, Lazarus doesn't get a burial. And yet both their fortunes at the end of the story are reversed. Lazarus is elevated and the rich man is tormented. And so before we even get to the topic of hell, Jesus is telling us something about our lives here and now. He's telling us that when we see injustice in our world, or when we recognize that we're perpetuating injustice, it actually means something. Our actions or inactions actually matter here and now, and not just for myself and for my family or friends or for my city or state or country. They matter on an eternal scale. They matter on a cosmic scale. Like the rich man, we are responsible for responding to what we can see, know, and help restore. And if we don't, then we betray the heart of our creator and his image in us. We betray the life that we're designed to have. God has given us eyes that can see on the scope of eternity, that recognize that our actions mean something way beyond our lives. He's given us those eyes to see. We're made for more than to just ignore. As one of my favorite spoken word and hip-hop artist propaganda would say, you have your daddy's eyes. Stop being so traitorous. And now, at this point in the story, is where some of us might start to get a little bit uncomfortable. And that's okay. I'm, I'm willing to recognize some discomfort that can happen because we learn that the rich man is being tormented in a place called Hades. But I think the discomfort that we feel has more to do with the things that we're actually projecting into the text that we're bringing into the story than what the story actually gives us. I think we have pictures in our head about what the afterlife looks like, about what heaven and hell look like that make this really uncomfortable for us. And so I, I want to actually do a quick thought experiment to illustrate this. I'm going to ask everyone here to, to picture in their minds what you think of when you think of hell. What picture do you think of when you think of hell? My guess is it's something like this. Caleb's going to throw up a slide. Hopefully you guys can see it. Probably something like this. A fork-tongued and pitchforked devil and constantly consuming fire. I think this works equally when we talk about heaven. What do you think of when you think of heaven, right? My guess is it's probably something like this picture. Musically gifted, chubby little infants flying around naked and dancing on clouds, right? We rise up with them and we sprout wings and all of a sudden we know how to play the harp. That's heaven, right? I think we have pictures that are very simplified of heaven and hell. And what we realize is when we dive into the Bible and when we dive into church history, we see it's far more diverse in its language about what hell is and what heaven is. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to just nerd out with me for a second. We're going to do a dive into a few different ways that the Bible describes hell. For those deconstructors, we're going to deconstruct those images a little bit because I think it's helpful if we're to actually address what's going on in this text. And so one thing that's important to remember with hell is that it's always described metaphorically in Scripture. It's always described using poetry or prophecy. It's described with images that are supposed to point us to a state of being. And there's actually multiple different images and multiple different words used to describe those images. There are three alone in the New Testament that are used. And so we'll look at those and we'll actually be able to expand out from there to the rest of Scripture. The first of those words used in the New Testament to describe hell is Hades. 
And that's the word we get in this text. But it doesn't refer to eternal conscious torment in a literal lake of fire. That's not how the audience would have seen it. It's actually pulling from the Hebrew term of Sheol. And Sheol just referred to the place of the dead. It was viewed as kind of an in-between space from when we die to when final justice and restoration occurs. That's what Hades looks like. A second word that's used to describe hell is the word Gehenna. And Gehenna actually refers to a real physical place that the audience would have known and understood. It refers to the Valley of Hinnom, which is a small valley not far from Jerusalem. And the Valley of Hinnom is a place where people who lived in the city would go and actually burn their refuse, their trash. If there were dead bodies that, well, couldn't be buried or didn't have the means to be buried, they would take them there and burn them there. And it also had a checkered past. When Israel disobeyed God, when they left the source of life and goodness and truth and beauty and chose to follow other gods, well, they actually sacrificed their children in the Valley of Hinnom to those other gods. And so it's certainly, for the audience, not a place that you want to spend time, right? It's a place that smells. It's a place that's regularly burning, but they're, they're actually given a picture of what the, the uh, absence of God looks like, of what leaving God actually looks like. It would be like me saying, hey, throw a graveyard and a landfill together and then light it on fire, and that's what it's like to not be near God. That's what it's like to not be near the source of life and goodness. And so they had a, a very tangible image. It's a rich metaphor that that little square of the horns devil doesn't really do justice to. A third word that's used to describe hell in the New Testament, it's used once in uh, Peter, in 1 Peter. Uh, Peter, in, in this text, borrows actually a word that's used in Greek mythology called Tartarus, and that's describing a dungeon uh, where the wicked are housed. Uh, it's actually, if you remember the, the Disney version of Hercules, it's where the Titans are housed, if you remember those Titans in that story. Uh, it's not completely clear what Peter might be referring to there because he only uses it once but it seems that he's borrowing the language from the culture in order to communicate something that people would understand. Regardless, it's clear from looking at scripture that there's a variety of descriptions. And all of those words that I just brought up, they're actually used in a variety of contexts and for a variety of images, both in the, the New and the Old Testament. Hell can be a lake of fire. It's described that way in Revelation 20, but it's also described in Matthew 8 as a place of darkness. And that should immediately strike us, right? Because those two things can't both literally be true. A lake of fire has to have light. A place of darkness does not have light. Those two things are giving us images that point us to a state of being, of what it's like to be away from the source of life. In Malachi, we get the image of a purifying forge, like a blacksmith's shop, like Will Turner in Pirates of the Caribbean, using heat to form and make tools in order to be useful. In Zechariah, it talks about hell as a consuming fire of God's glory, that God's goodness and beauty is so big, it's so massive that it just brings everything into itself. In Malachi, it's even talked about as a cleansing soap, like laundry detergent. When's the last time you heard about the laundry load of hell? The Bible is full of rich metaphor and imagery, and that simple image that we showed earlier, it reduces what the Bible's really saying. And these descriptions are so wide-ranging in Scripture that the church fathers, the men and women who are directly connected to Jesus and the apostles, when they were developing the early church, they actually felt like you could kind of have different views on what hell was and how it all worked. 
you could have different views on the mechanics of it all. And that actually led them in the early Christian creeds, which are just fancy statements that are essential Christian tenets, essentially, uh, the essential things that you must believe in order to be a Christian. They actually didn't include a specific view of hell as a necessity in order to become a Christian. They didn't believe that you had to know exactly how hell looked or worked in order to be a Christian. There's room to speculate. And so that's some deconstructing of maybe that image of hell that we've had. But I think it's important for us to really identify, so what is it that Christians do believe, right? What is it that Christians do believe about the afterlife and about God? And I think that's actually a more compelling question because that points us to the characteristics of our Lord. And there's two essential things that we must believe as Christians in order to understand God's judgment and justice. The first of those characteristics is that God is entirely just. We must believe that God is objective and will fairly respond to everything that happens in our lives and in the world around us. And that's actually what gives Christians their hope when they see injustice in the world, because they know that that injustice will not always persist. They know that justice will eventually come. And I was reminded of the importance of this idea in Christianity uh, recently. During COVID, Emily, my wife, and I watched uh, the Jeffrey Epstein documentary on Netflix. Uh, some of you may have watched it. If you're not sure who Jeffrey Epstein is, he, well, he did a lot of bad things in his life. And this documentary talks specifically about how he actually uh, sexually abused young girls and trafficked young girls. And he brought other celebrities into it as this really dark and terrible thing that he did, but he was caught. And he was set up for a court date and put in a prison. And in prison, before he actually was able to go to trial, before we were able to name him as guilty in our courts of law, he committed suicide. Some people think there might have been some sketchy business with how his death worked, but he died before we were able to name him as guilty in a U.S. court of law. And on the documentary, it talks about, well, it actually interviews the victims of Jeffrey Epstein. And all of them across the board talk about how difficult it is for them to know that their abuser never faced justice. They have to live every day believing that he never faced justice, that he escaped with his injustice in hand. Christians don't believe that Jeffrey Epstein escaped justice. Christians believe that we have a God who sees Jeffrey Epstein's heart and knows Jeffrey Epstein's mind, and after dying, he judges him rightly. Justice is only possible on an eternal scale if God is entirely just, and we believe that that's true as Christians. That's a necessity when we talk about the afterlife. God is fully just. But there's also a second characteristic that we must know about God. We must know that God is also merciful that God gives grace to repentant sinners and that God will always hear our repentant hearts. And this is made evident on the cross. Jesus hanging, ready to die with one man on one side and another man on another side, two criminals. One of them mocks Jesus saying, you could get yourself off of this. You don't have to die in this way. And the other man submits to Jesus. He repents despite all of his terrible actions that have led him to this death penalty consequence. And he says, Jesus, you're, you're Lord. And Jesus tells that man who has done egregious things throughout his life, he says, you'll be with me in paradise. 
God's mercy hears the cries of repentant sinners. And so it's our job as Christians to long and practice both justice and mercy. We long and act for justice when we see innocent men shot in the street. We long and act for justice when we see Beirut explode from government negligence. We long and act for justice when we see women and children bought and sold for their bodies. We long and act for justice. But we also long and act for mercy. We long for mercy when we see that we're self-obsessed human beings. We long for mercy when we see that we're neglecting the poor, the widow, the immigrant, and the orphan. We long for mercy when we mistreat our planet. We long for mercy. And so we live constantly in this tension. And the mechanics of it all in the afterlife, we leave that to the only one who is unbiased and impartial. We leave that to the only objective source possible. If I, as a Christian, claim to know exactly how it's all going to work and where everyone is going to end up, then I actually make myself God. I say that I can see into the hearts and minds of people, and Scripture does not allow us to do that. God doesn't give us that vision. All right, so we've deconstructed hell a little bit, right? We've, we've seen that the Bible's maybe a little bit more diverse and a little bit more rich and nuanced than we initially thought. And we know that it's essential to believe that God is fully just and fully merciful, that that's what's going on here. But that still should leave us with the question, why hell, right? Why is hell a thing? Why does Jesus talk about it in the way that he does? And I think digging into this story, we start to get an indication. So let's keep reading here. We're in Hades, and the rich man sees Lazarus. He actually recognizes him, which, again, points you to the fact that he ignored him in his earthly life that he knew who Lazarus was and he chose not to help him. And now, despite his current location, the rich man actually doubles down on his earthly actions. He implies that Lazarus should still serve him. He says, Abraham, send Lazarus to give me some water. He should still serve me. He's still self-consumed and self-elevating over his peers. And he also, nowhere in this story, repents. There's no sign of repentance at any point. It's only self-concern. He doesn't admit that he's wrongfully treated Lazarus in his life. He doesn't acknowledge his own self-fulfillment kind of desires. He doesn't try to change himself. He believes himself to still be justified. And he still believes that other people should serve him rather than him serve others. And so what we find here is that the literal burning and thirst of the rich man is less important. What is far more important is the condition of the rich man's heart. See, that's what's making him desperate and tormented. During his entire life, he feasted and cared only for himself, believing his life to be the most important thing. His feasts were focused internally. His heart was turned inward on itself, and he rejected the love that God called him to. He rejected the self-sacrifice that we are made for as humans. And now... At the, end of the, at the end of it all, he remains self-righteous, caring only for himself in this moment. Rather than identifying that Lazarus is present with Abraham and maybe making the connection that he should repent and serve Lazarus, he continues in his pride and hard-heartedness. And so he's been handed over to the desires of his heart, which were always there to begin with. And since these desires are opposed to the selfless, 
sacrificial, loving life that God has created us for, well, he's being tormented. He's being tormented by his own opposition to the source of life. The afterlife is just a continuation of the orientation of our hearts starting now. We are just continuing in the way that we've been going. There's a famous theologian, his name is Paul Tillich. He talks about this in a really compelling way. He says this, humankind is separated from its origin. It lives under a law of wrath and frustration, of tragedy and self-destruction, because it produces one distorted image of God after another and adores those images. This rich man has created image after image in place of God. It's food, it's riches, it's wealth, and it's all focused on self. And that's been happening well before we get to the story, but we do see that it's happening in the story as well. And so Jesus' parable here, it shouldn't make us look to some distant future related to our own fate at the hands of some furious tyrant God. It should direct us to the life that we're living right now. This is exactly how Jesus ends the parable. He leaves the response up to us. He subverts the typical ending, and rather than allowing the rich man to send someone back to his family, Abraham says two things to the rich man. He says, first, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. In other words, he's saying, look at the scriptures. Look at the miraculous evidence of God showing up, of inviting you into full and free life over and over and over and over and over and over again. God has shown himself to us. The life that he has for us is abundantly clear all around us. We just need to look. And the rich man rebuts this idea, right? He's like, no, no, no. If, if someone rises from the dead, then, then they'll figure it out. And Abraham says, look, even if someone rose from the dead, they wouldn't believe. They wouldn't choose a different type of life. He's telling us here that when the heart is so turned in on itself, when the heart is so self-focused, no amount of empirical evidence could change it. At some point, you make a choice to be self-fulfilling or self-sacrificial. And that's what he's exposing here. And he's actually foreshadowing Jesus is his eventual death and resurrection. Because his audience, the Pharisees, didn't believe Jesus even after he rose from the dead. A man rising from the dead did not change their self-righteousness. And so Abraham's response in this text immediately turns the vision from the destination to our current location. It pivots. Like Ross in Friends, it pivots. God has been revealed, and the life God has for us is immediately in front of us. We just need to look around. Jesus uses hell in this parable in order to lead us to God and live the life we were created for right now. For us as Christians today, he's saying, read the scriptures. Look at the stories. Look around you. Look at the Zoom call. Look at the, the people who have been transformed by the love and grace of God. Look what it's doing in their lives. The peace that they live with. God is evident. Look at the cross and the resurrection and see what it's done in the lives of people. That's what this story is focusing us on. It's enabling us to start living in the kingdom of heaven right now. And so by the end, we realize that hell wasn't brought up so that we would fixate on it or try to critique it. Hell is actually meant to point us to the kingdom of heaven in our current world. Hell is for heaven's sake. 
It directs us to the type of life that Jesus is inviting us into. The type of life not defined by self-righteous pursuits of our own interests, but instead defined by sacrificial love. Hell is just like the wrong way sign on the freeway. It's directing us to the road that we were made to drive on in the first place. A long, long time ago, something really curious happened deep below the surface of the earth that would change geological and geographical history for good. In the middle of the Pacific Ocean, what geologists call a hotspot started to develop. Now, a hotspot is just this area near the earth's core that starts to warm up to excessive temperatures, upwards of 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And so this particular hotspot way back in the day started to heat up the next outer layer of earth, which is called the mantle. You're getting a, a fifth grade geology lesson here, so welcome to church. And the area around the core uh, is called the mantle, and it's full of, of rock, of solid rock. And this mantle started to heat up, and it rose, and eventually it met the Earth's crust. And at the Earth's crust, magma started to form, this liquid that we know. And then it, that magma worked its way through the crust to the seafloor, and it started to cool. And then, piling on top of itself over and over and over, over many years, it actually broke the surface of the ocean. And the result of this process looks like this. The picturesque views of Hawaii that fill our screensavers and our Insta stories and our honeymoon photo albums, it began as fiery brimstone and carbon dioxide, expanding and consuming up and up to the surface until it produced that magnificent island. And so what we learn here is this, that heat produces beauty. It produces fertile soil where life and fruit can start to grow. And similarly, scripture uses metaphors describing hell not to stoke fiery retribution from a vengeful God, but to spark fiery redemption from a, a restoring God. To do that in our world today. Hell is a hot spot warming our rocky hearts and creating something new and beautiful with them. And so do my deconstructors. I can't answer all of your questions about who goes where and how it all works. God hasn't given me that permission. He hasn't given any of us that permission. And thank God, God hasn't. Because none of us are perfectly just and merciful. The mechanics are in the hands of the only one who should have them. Instead of giving us the exact details, God actually puts all of us on a need-to-know basis. And what we need to know is this, that true, abundant, free, peace-filled, tall glass of water in the Phoenix summer sort of life is found in Jesus. Jesus himself mentions hell in this story in order to lead us to that sort of life. Jesus himself conquers death and hell so that we might be free to live. And this life he points us to is a life marked by the freeing of all of those who are captive to their oppressors. It's the removal of all debts and burdens. It's the wiping away of all tears of mourning. It's joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. It's the approval of an eternal God who loves and cherishes us. It's the chain-breaking, freedom-waking, cosmos-quaking love and grace of a God who wants to see all things restored to their full goodness. 
And this love and grace is available to us right now to experience ourselves and to share with the world. That's the whole point. Heaven and hell aren't these eternal escape routes disconnected from our lives here and now. They're continuations of what has already begun. Scriptures say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus has initiated it. We can participate in the kingdom of heaven right now by knowing Jesus. And so the wrong way sign of hell is only there to point us to the right way. And now the ball is in our court. Will we choose to see hell as a place of fiery punishment created by an angry, retributive God? Or will we see hell as a means to heaven's end, pointing us to submit to Jesus and the life we've been made for? The choice is ours, just as it was the rich man's. For heaven's sake, how the hell will we respond? Would you pray with me?